You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the All-Star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We've got nothing but baseball calmness for you. He's a legend in our game from ESPN, Tim Kirchin. We love having her on because there's really not a better follow on Twitter and love listening to her on Baseball Tonight podcast with Buster Only. The great Sarah Langs is with us. Jared Diamond has the new book out and, of course, is a baseball columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And then our buddy Eno Saris, who does a terrific job for The Athletic. That's who you're going to hear in this edition of A's Unfiltered. And we start with Tim Kirchin from ESPN. Tim, how you doing? Chris Townsend with the Oakland A's. Yes, how are you? Uh, we're doing great. Uh, we always appreciate you coming on the program. My pleasure. You know, I, I was in the dugout at spring training with Bob Melvin and Ken Rosenthal, and we were talking about you, and there was somebody else. Like, it's amazing the national baseball writers at one point who were covering the Baltimore Orioles together. Yeah, it was. It's a great newspaper town. I mean, Dan Shaughnessy came through there. Peter Pasquarelli, Ken Nigro, Buster Jr., Rosenthal, Richard Justice, myself, Peter Schmuck. A lot of great baseball writers came through there, and we really enjoyed it because, you know, the Orioles were the only game in town when I covered the team there, so it was a big deal. Yeah, Bob Melvin was talking about having all you guys around and uh, how special it was. So we we talked about that down at spring training. And recently you've brought up seeing Ted Williams in an old timers game. You know, we don't have those anymore. I know the Yankees still do it. But I remember, you know, growing up in San Diego, they'd have they'd have one every single year. I mean, what was it like? I mean, Ted Williams in an old timers game. I mean, that'd be incredible. Yeah, it was amazing, but it was even more amazing in the house that I grew up in. My father was a really good player, and he had a great feel for the game, and he grew up in the Boston area, so Ted Williams was his baseball hero growing up, so I grew up to stories of Ted Williams. So there I am at age 24, 25, whatever I was, and I'm watching Ted Williams, my father's baseball hero from 10 feet away, step into the cage. And the first pitch he saw, he hit a line drive that went into the bullpen in right center field on one hop. It was absolutely breathtaking. And to be that close to Ted Williams, to see him still swing the bat like that at age 63 was just remarkable. And it sounds corny, but that's one of the highlights of my baseball writing career is not only did I get to meet and interview Ted Williams, I got to sw- see him swing a bat 
at an advanced age, and he could still swing it. I got a great old-timers game story in San Diego. So my grandfather was Bob Elliott. He was the first third baseman ever to win the MVP in 1947 with the Boston Braves and then played with – he played with the Braves – Spawn insane and pray for rain in the uh, 1948 World Series against Bob Feller. And my grandfather hit two home runs off Bob Feller in that World Series. So years later, Bob Feller is playing in an old timers game. And my mom says, go up, go, go up to the rail and tell Bob that your grandfather's Bob Elliott. And it's the, it's, I don't think you're going to be surprised by this. So my, my brother, my older brother goes up, Mr. Feller, Mr. Feller. And and he turns around and he goes, my grandfather's Bob Elliott. He goes, that son of a B hit two home runs off me in the world series. He turned around and walked away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, that sounds like Bob Feller to me also. He's one of the great pitchers ever. He's one of the great, he's the greatest Cleveland Indian ever for me. But he was fiercely proud of everything that he did, which is one reason he was so great. So I'm not surprised by that reaction. I'm sure he had tremendous respect for your grandfather. But if you hit two homers off Bob Feller, you're not on the good list. (laughs) Uh, It seems like we have a lot of movement going on. I mean, as we speak, I mean, it just came out that the Players Association is going to donate one million to the minor leaguers to help them out. Uh, we've heard about the progress between Tony Clark and the commissioner. Uh, I know you've talked in the past that you've heard people say we might not have a baseball season. Are you a little more positive now with what we've learned in the past couple of days? Yes, I'm, I'm way more positive now than I was three days ago and two days ago. But yesterday I thought it started to turn, believe it or not. And when you hit rock bottom like baseball did and people were screaming, that's it, the season's not going to happen. Usually, in my experience, covering all these labor negotiations, starting with 1981, when things seem the most dire, uh, that's when they start to turn. And I think that is the case here. Now, I'm not saying it's done, but I'm saying this is the most significant progress that I've seen certainly since the end of March when they made the initial agreement on uh, service time and all that. And it just, it took the commissioner getting on an airplane and going to see Tony Clark for things to really start to move. That's the only way these things start to move. In my experience, when you get committees of 15 people on each side going in, it doesn't work that way. But when you have a much smaller group, even one-on-one, that's when the chances get much better. And let's hope, and I'm very confident now, that baseball has to salvage the season. And the only way to do it is to get an agreement and play as soon as possible. You know, I don't know if I'm overstating this, but when you start seeing the, the stars of the PGA Tour tee it up, it makes you look even worse. And I know you can totally social distance in golf. You don't need to have a crowd. But when golf is playing and you're sitting here bickering about money and NASCAR's going and NBA's talking about starting up and football's talking about starting up, but when you actually start seeing golf, just how bad of a look is that for baseball? Well, baseball recognized how terrible a look 
it is. And that's when the commissioner came out and said, our game is a disaster. That's what the commissioner said. And to me, that's when things started to turn. He realized the danger and the damage that could be caused by not playing this year when all these other sports technically or potentially will play. And that's when I think Rob Manfred said, I'm under fire here. Our game is under fire. Is to get back on the field because the only way that people are going to get interested in the game again is to watch Mike Trout hit a line drive over the left center field fence. And it's to watch Garrett Cole throw 100 miles an hour at Yankee Stadium. This is how it works. And thank goodness we're, I believe, on the way towards reaching something here. I certainly hope so. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think the owners realize, I mean, it's all negotiations. And it's always when someone says, I'm going to take my ball and go home when things really start to get done. And, you know, they're floating stuff to the media. Yeah, there's six to eight owners who don't want to play. I look at those owners and they're not dumb. I mean, if your sport goes off the grid for 17 to 18 months, that 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 two two billion dollar business you own, that's not worth two billion anymore. And I think about all the players who, you know, they got these guaranteed contracts. By the way, I don't even know what your contract is worth if you go away for two years. So I I, I got the feeling that they're all starting to realize if we don't play, our sport will never be the same. Right. And I don't pretend to understand the finances of a billionaire major league owner. However, for some of them to be thinking, at least suggesting, we're better off not playing at all this year rather than playing, you know, 60 games, full prorated salary, no fans in the stands. Look, I understand they'll probably lose more money that way, but they will increase the value of the franchise as long as games are going on. And if you come to an agreement, you play this year and potentially have a tremendous October, it could actually gather momentum for the offseason, for next season. And the fact that the two sides at least possibly can agree on something, that gives us hope that they can agree on a collective bargaining agreement after 2021. So I'm all for anything is better than nothing. So let's play as many games as possible. And 60 full prorated salary seems like the way to go. Yeah, and it you know later on we're we're gonna have David Force, our great GM, on the program. We we taped it earlier today, and these guys really don't know. And we had Bob Melvin on last week. They just they 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 they've never been through this before. Sixty games. I mean, this is this is crazy. I mean, we've always said, oh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, this is a full on sprint, and I'm saying it's a full on sprint, like a, like a, like like with hurdles. I, what do you think this is going to be like when 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 you've talked to all the people you've you've spoke to about a shortened season? Well, it's going to be the strangest baseball season we've ever seen. I'm not sure there's a way around that. But as a purist and a traditionalist, I'd much rather play 162 than 60. However, if it is a mad dash to the finish, every game matters. Every team has the same chance expanded playoffs, more teams have a chance to win the World Series. October could be a complete free-for-all. 
for some people, that will be tremendous. And I'm hoping it will be tremendous because, again, that could build momentum into the offseason and into next season. It will be bizarre, and there will be no time for slow starts. And maybe some younger teams that aren't nearly as good as the Yankees or the Dodgers, they could get hot for 40 games or 50 games or 60 games. That's the beauty of baseball. That can happen. So that's something we have to keep our eye on is who's ready to go right away because you better be ready if we only play 60 games. Yes, and I think that's kind of – there's. I would bet this, and I said it earlier before you came on, there will be one outlier, you know, because because you know during this pandemic with this show, uh, we've gone we we've had somebody on from each team and we've broken down every division and every team, and I'm sure there's going to be some team that we thought wasn't going to be good who's going to get into the postseason. Well, that happens almost every year, anyway. With 162 games, with 60 games, it's possible two or three teams that you look at and say, I didn't have them as a playoff team at all, could make the playoffs. To repeat, that is the beauty of baseball. If this were basketball in Michael Jordan's prime, you know, the lousy teams still aren't going into Chicago and beating Jordan's Bulls. But in baseball, if you get hot, you can carry it on for a month. And that might be enough to really get some momentum going. That's the beauty of this sport. So I I think it's going to be a wild 60 games if that's how it ends up. And I think it potentially could be a wild October also. When you watch the documentary about the home run race in 1998, obviously you covered it. What were your thoughts when you watched it? Well, I really thought the documentary was great. ESPN's really good at doing those things. But I was there live, and it was an electrifying baseball season. And that home run chase was breathtaking. It was unforgettable. And I understand, in hindsight, in the aftermath, we've learned some things that weren't very good. And it tainted that race just a little bit. But I still remember it. And I still have great feelings about it. And I, I could still see it and hear it. And that happened to me. So these people that say, oh, well, that didn't happen. We can't count that anymore. That was a mirage. I, I'm not buying that. That was real. That was amazing. And that really helped lift the game um, out of the, the shadow of the 1994-95 strike. And, and Cal Ripken started that. But the home run chase in 98 really got it moving. Yeah, that was a uh, a period for me. That was the start of my career. And I remember being at Candlestick Park and Mark McGuire coming to town and they had the red velvet ropes around the batting cage. I'd never seen anything like that before. And, you know, I just think back to that time and I think Sammy Sosa is correct. You know, the, you know, Barry Bonds has been honored by the San Francisco Giants. Mark McGuire has been honored by not only the St. Louis Cardinals, but he's also been put into the our, our new A's Hall of Fame. We've honored him. The fact that Sammy hasn't gone back to Chicago, I, I, you may have more information on it. W- why is that? Why have they not come together? Sammy Sosa made that franchise a lot of money. Yeah, he sure did. But the, the owners of the team now, 
did not have Sammy as a player back then. So there was a disconnect between the two. And Sammy has conducted himself in a rather unusual manner since. Uh, unlike Mark McGuire, who's been a coach and a bench coach and been around teams and been a part of the game. So I, I agree. I'm not sure why there is such a disagreement between the Cubs and Sammy Sosa. Granted, he caused some issues, several issues himself, but I think it's uh, probably time to uh, both of those two to get together and have, have a little chat. I think that would do some good. You know, before we let you go, we're going to start honoring the 1989 Oakland Athletics, who truly are one of the great teams of all time. They had so many stars. They traveled like rock stars. I mean, they were the A's. You're, you know, you're talking about Jose, and you're talking about Mark McGuire. You're talking about Ricky Henderson, Dennis Eckersley. I mean, you're talking about one of the great teams, when you look back, what, and I, and I just ask you simply, what, what are your, what are your main things you take away from the 1989 world series champions? Well, they're certainly one of the greatest teams that I've ever been around. Now the Yankees of course did it three years in a row and the Cincinnati Reds in 75, 76, I think were better. But that A's team just wiped out the Giants in 1989. And some people look at it and say, what a terrible World Series that was. I, I never look at it that way. I just look at complete domination by one team. And when you look at the Hall of Famers or the Hall of Fame talent on that team, uh, they were really, really fun to watch. They were so beautifully run by the manager. They had incredible power and speed. They had the best closer a lot of people have ever seen other than Mariano Rivera and they had Dave Stewart and others. So the way they just dismantled uh, the Giants was really breathtaking to watch. Yeah, we had Carney Lansford on, who obviously was the third baseman, because uh, he was also the bench coach for Tony La Russa during 1998. They basically took uh, the A's coaching staff from Oakland and former players like Dave Parker, uh, Dave Duncan, the pitching coach, they basically took the staff from Oakland to St. Louis and started winning in St. Louis and winning World Series in St. Louis. Yeah, well, Tony's the ultimate loyal guy, and he has his guys. And Dunk was his pitching coach, and he loved him for, for all the good reasons. Carney Lansford was as good a teammate as you'll ever see. He wasn't the best player on that A's team. There were several who were better than him, but he was pretty damn good. But he was the glue in a lot of ways. He was the leader in a lot of ways. And that's one reason that team won as many games as it did. It didn't just have great players. It had leaders everywhere. Dave Stewart certainly was. Carney Lansford. Man, they were they were really a, such a good team to watch. Tim, I can't wait to see you on ESPN during games, on SportsCenter. I, I miss seeing you on the television. I just can't wait till we get this thing going again and get back to whatever kind of close to normalcy we can. Thank you for coming on the program. You know how much we respect you and your work. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon and stay safe. Tim's a good guy. Love having him on the program. Also love having on the program, Sarah Langs. And Sarah Langs is such a great researcher and a lot of fun having her on the program. From MLB.com, here's Sarah. Well, Sarah, it's one of our favorite guests. 
and she hasn't been on in a while. And I'm just going to say, we have all missed you. How are you? <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm doing well. It's so great to be chatting with you guys. Are, 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 are you, have you been hunkering down in New York? Uh, yeah, I live just outside the city, but yeah, I've been here the whole time. You know, things are looking up. It's beautiful outside these days, which is nice, you know, not quite Bay Area weather, but I'll take it. And, you know, things seem to be getting better. So let's hope, you know. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it, it, you know, talking with Tim Kirchin, we just had him on. And it's just, it, it's the way that the negotiations work. You got to hit rock bottom to get a deal done. And it looks like that's where we are in baseball right now. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, encouraging news today. We'll see exactly what what all happens. But again, I look outside, I see gorgeous, gorgeous weather. And I just think I want to be seeing baseball, even if there's no fans there and everything else. We want people to be safe. But there should be baseball with this this kind of weather going on, you know? No doubt. And, and watching either the KBO or watching the PGA Tour, at some point when you're watching the games, it's like you don't even, you don't even like, realize there's not fans there it's like you don't focus on that at all totally I feel exactly the same way you know I think that some other sports are going to have some interesting hurdles with it um I think basketball is going to sound kind of weird without fans because the the basketball bouncing on the court is going to sound really hollow but personally I think baseball and most of these sports regardless you know you've got great announcers great people to listen to that's really what matters yeah no no doubt about it and and, and I know a lot of people are, are are angry with baseball, but I got a feeling once they get back on the field and they're eight, because because if you're talking sixty games in seventy days, you're playing every single day, basically. You know, with a, with just a few days off, and that's really what we need. We need live content. I have a feeling people are going to forgive baseball once it gets going again, because it'll, it, it'll it, it hell, it'll just give us something to do. And it's just the best. I mean, you know, whatever your opinion of how the last few months have gone, we all love to watch baseball. That's why we're here talking right now. And it'll just be so comforting and wonderful to see it, you know, if we do get that chance. You recently have done an uh, an, an article about guys getting into the Hall of Fame. MVPs, Cy Youngs, Rookie of the Years. It, you know, it, it, it seems like the Hall of Fame voting continues to change you, you know years ago they used to look look at certain numbers now there's more with analytics um talk about how there's some really good players but they haven't gotten in yeah so i wrote about as you said basically you know winning these different baseball writers association awards which for the players are mvp cy young and rookie of the year and how that sort of correlates to getting into the Hall of Fame. I only looked at players who have already been Hall of Fame eligible, so they're retired for at least five years, and they played at least 10 seasons. So we're not considering guys who won MVP awards that weren't voted on by the BBWAA. That was that began in 1931, so not those previous Babe Ruth ones you see on his reference page. Those were other MVP awards. Um, but, yeah, I really just wanted to see how it correlated. And as you said, you know, there's so many factors that go into it, and I don't think the point is even necessarily that voters are specifically looking at these things. But what I ended up finding is that there are definitely certain thresholds, and some of them you probably know regardless off the top of your head. I mean, if you win three-plus MVP awards – you're going to be in the Hall of Fame, except for Barry Bonds. And obviously, that's a very special and specific case. And 
We'll see what happens with that. You know, with the last uh, two years, he's got left of eligibility. And the same is true when you look at Cy Young. So when you're in the three plus range, it's everybody except for Roger Clemens. And one of the things that was interesting to me going through this, and I did two MVP awards and one, and then the same for Cy Young's, was thinking about the active players and how they sort of fit in or guys who retired but aren't on the ballot yet. So when you talk about guys to win three plus MVPs, you know, Trout and Pujols are active players, and those are slam dunks. I mean, I think we can probably say that even right now. Um, Mike Trout does need to begin his 10th season, which will begin whenever he plays his next game. But uh, once that happens, and Alex Rodriguez is the one who's retired, but not yet eligible. He'll be eligible on the ballot for 2022. And, I, you know, his case is probably, it might go similarly to Bonds's. We'll see whether any of those sort of opinions change. Um, and then in the three plus Cy Young category, you have Max Scherzer and Clayton Kershaw. So I, I think it's a lot of fun to sort of look at these percentages, how frequently guys get in and think about guys who are, you know, current players we're seeing on the field. You know, there are a ton of guys who've won one MVP award. And with what I went through, 47% of the players to win just one MVP award ended up in the Hall of Fame of guys who've been Hall of Fame eligible so far. So just about a toss up, just about 50-50. So you look at names like Cody Bellinger, who's got plenty of his career left to go. Mookie Betts, plenty of his career left to go. Someone like Buster Posey, whose career is kind of more on the other side at this point, and also did win another award with Rookie of the Year, of course, and, you know, sort of start to evaluate where they're going to fall on this threshold. Well, before we get to Buster Posey, how about <laughs> my how about my grandfather? My grandfather was the first third baseman ever to win the MVP in 1947, Bob Elliott. He was a seven-time All-Star. He drove in 1,195 uh, runs. He scored 1,064 runs. I had a 50.5 career war. Never even got a look. I mean, he had a great career, obviously. I mean, he had the most, he had the most RBIs in the 40s, but... Yeah. The way you judge people like my grandfather back in the day, we don't judge people as harshly as they used to. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's definitely something to be said for just how the Hall of Fame, I mean, getting even getting onto the ballot, you know, I, I think that now there's certainly a there's an honor to even making the ballot. I think that we see some of these guys who even fall off after one year and, you know, don't quite really get full consideration. You have to even make it onto there. So that in and of itself is is definitely an achievement. Also, I did not know that about your grandfather. So that's incredible. And now I wish that, you know, I had found a way to mention him specifically in this article. <laughs> it's okay. You, 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 we've got plenty of time. <laughs> this go is over a lot of different things. You know, Buster Posey. So Cody and I joke all the time because we worked with a bunch of not objective would that be the best way, Cody, to put it? They were not objective Giants fans. I like to call them fanboys. <laughs> he calls it like, and they would look at us and go, Buster Posey's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I'm like, have you looked at his numbers? And they go, well, he won three World Series. I'm like, did you look at his numbers in the playoffs? Buster Posey has been horrific offensively in the postseason. I'm not going to. I'm not, and I did an interview with Joe Morgan years ago where Joe Morgan said, Your Hall of Fame, the reason you get in the Hall of Fame is for what you do in the regular season. The postseason is just the icing on the cake. And I, you look at Buster Posey's numbers. Now, I want, I know he's rookie of the year. I know he's won an MVP. I know he's got a batting title, 
But if you look at his 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 overall career numbers, and as you said, he's on the downside of his career. Do you think he's a Hall of Famer? You know, it's funny. So in the context of this article, I actually talked to Buster Olney on Monday uh, on his podcast about it, specifically this case, Buster Posey. And I think that, you know, the ultimate conclusion is that I think that he's someone who may eventually end up in, whether it's a veterans committee or something like that. But probably at the moment doesn't necessarily seem that he would get in in those 10 years. And, you know, he's just such a case of the peaks were so high and there was definitely a period where he was considered the best at his position, probably across the board, not just defensively, but offensively. But as you're saying, you know, the lows have also been pretty low. There's one thing with wins above replacement. And we've talked about that, that obviously that's not an end all be all. It's just one stat, one descriptive thing to use, but the average Hall of Fame catcher already in the Hall of Fame has 53.6 career war and 34.8 war in the sum of their best seven seasons. Posey, at the moment, has 41.8 career war. Of course, his, war, his uh, career is not yet over, but 36.6 in his seven best. So that really shows you, you know, he's above those average Hall of Fame catcher, average of the Hall of Fame catchers in his best seasons, but the overall, you know, conglomerate of everything is not necessarily quite there. But you mentioned about the Rookie of the Year, and that was something really interesting to me in the context of what I did research, which is, you know, Rookie of the Year is the least uh, correlated to making the Hall of Fame because you can have one great year to start and you're career maybe never quite get there you might not even play the requisite 10 years there's a lot of ways that rookie of the year is the least predictive but of the 83 rookie of the year winners who have been eligible to be on the hall of fame ballot only 17 of those are in the hall of fame but of those 83 only 20 of them won at least one additional of these awards so won an mvp or won a cy young and of those 20 11 are in the hall of fame so just over 15 50 percent excuse me He's on that list. Now, he could be one of the in the group of the nine who are not, of course. Um, but that's much more reflective. And that shows that, you know, not just winning the rookie of the year, but following it up at some point with another award winning season does seem to get you closer into that category. But, you know, I'll still maintain some hope that maybe, you know, coming off the hip surgery, fully healthy, all of that, maybe he you know, harnesses some of that back. And we see a little bit more of the vintage Buster Posey. His defense has still been outstanding, even throughout these last three years. That is worth noting, but we'll see. We'll see. All right. I have an idea and I, and I want to see if, if you like my idea. So we got these great players hanging out there who have all the numbers. They should be in the Hall of Fame. But they're not voting them in because they're PED guys. So to, to to rectify this, my idea is one year we just do a steroid, get the guys in, in Cooperstown. It's going to be the steroid class. So you're going to have Bonds, you're going to have Clemens, you're going to have Palmero, McGuire, Sosa, A-Rod, Big Poppy, and just put them in all together. And they understand that they're going in as the steroid class, but they are getting their plaques in the Baseball Hall of Fame because they deserve to be in that plaque room. What do you think about my idea to just go, hey, these are some of the greatest Clemens, greatest of all time. You're going in and we're putting you all in in one class. Yeah, you know, I definitely like the idea. It does feel like 
they're all linked together, you know, and we do think of all of their Hall of Fame chances in the context of each other, especially with the fact that, you know, right now, Clemens and Bonds are, you know, they got on the ballot the same year, so they're going along the same path. And I don't know. I mean, I'm a very inclusive person when it comes to history, and I do think that we need to acknowledge everything that happened, and these are things that happened. Um, and you do want to see, I mean, these are record holders. These are players who put up outstanding seasons and whether or not things happened, whether or not those things have been actually proven or not, like th- these are things that happened. And I do think it is worth acknowledging. So, you know, if that's one way to do it, I- I'm in, I mean, you know, it's, it's just another hall of fame class. And ultimately, you know, I think 50 years from now, it all gets looked back on so differently anyway, and w- we have to acknowledge history. So speaking of history, we are going to be honoring the 1989 Oakland Athletics, uh, the World Series champion here, uh, replaying the ALCS against the Blue Jays and, of course, sweeping the Giants in the World Series. Uh, one of the oddest World Series of all time because of the earthquake and the stoppage in the World Series. I know you've done a little research for us on the 1989 team. How great were they? Oh, they were so, so great. I mean, you know, you don't see that many. World Series sweeps. Obviously, it was you know an interesting one as you as you made reference to, and you just don't see that many uh, that many teams you know rolling through the postseason in that way. Obviously, pre uh, division series, but you're only losing one game in the postseason, and you know so many great players. But you know what really surprised me, and this is a little trivia question for you guys, if you want it. Um, yeah. I was looking at it. And again, I, I am totally disclaimering with war. I know it's not the end-all, be-all. But do you guys know who was the war leader on that 1989 A's team? What player led the team in war? Because Ricky came over in a trade, so it's not going to be him. Um, Jose broke his hammock bone that year, so it's not going to be him. Huh. I'm going to go Dave Henderson. Good guess. Very good guess. And I love the uh, way you laid it out. Really logical there, all of that. But Dave Henderson was, let's see, he was top five. Um, Number one was Mike Moore. 5.4 wins above replacement. He had 261 ERA, made 35 starts, 5.4. Ricky Henderson was really close even with not playing the whole season with them. 5.1 with the A's that that season, but 5.4, Mike Moore. That surprised me. That would not have been my guess. I mean, even looking at the page, even looking at what everybody did. So I thought that was a fun one. He had a better war than Bob Welch? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Welch had 3.4, 3.4. So you know, I, 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 maybe you can explain this. I, I understand how hitters war works. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't really understand how pitchers like, for instance, Bob Welch, I'm looking at it. Yeah. He was 17. The three started 33 games. Uh, How, how do you actually do war for a pitcher? So I don't have the exact calculation in front of me or anything like that, but just looking at their two seasons, I'm going to guess that it has to do with run prevention. It has to do with run prevention over however many innings. And Mike Moore threw about 30 more innings um, than Bob Welch. And he did have an ERA of 261. Welch's was 3.00. 
Uh, and he did win two more games. So I think that it's just a combination of those factors. And war is a counting stat, you know, so obviously throwing a decent amount more in the season uh, is going to help there. You know, that's a handful of starts and all what, that. What, what was Dave Stewart's war? Dave Stewart's war, he was second among pitchers, and it was um, 3.8. 3.8. Well, I got to tell you, um, I don't – were you born in 1989? No, I was not. Yeah. These guys were rock stars. I yeah. mean, it was a rock star team. Uh, you know, Canseco was a larger than life kind of guy. You know, he had gone 40 for 40. Uh, he, he'd been a 40, 40 guy. I mean, at one point he's dating Madonna. I mean, these guys, this was a rock star. If you, they just didn't get their due because they lost the two other World Series they were in. But this 1989 team was so stacked, it was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, even just on paper, they are. And all the highlights, everything I've gone back and watched and seeing in documentaries and everything else, they're, they're, they seem like they were outstanding. So I 100% believe all that. So you've done some research on Ted Williams also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I know you guys were talking about, you know, this date in 1960, he had his 500th career home run. So I was just kind of looking at the breakdown of his home runs. You know, he homered off 224 career uh, pitchers in his career, which sounds like a lot. His most home runs were off of Virgil Trucks, 12. And then two other pitchers he had 10 off of were Ned Garver and Bob Feller. And then here's one of local interest for you guys. The franchise he hit the most off of was the A's. He hit 91 home runs off of them, including his first career home run, April 23rd, 1939, off of Bud Thomas. So, you know. That is impressive because the all-time leader, because we always talk about who's the all-time leader in home runs against the Oakland A's. And but and because Mike Trout's coming up the list versus mm -hmm. it's, it's A-Rod and Rafael Palmero, but Trout's coming up the list pretty fast. But nobody – is going to catch this guy. His name's Babe Ruth. He had 108 home runs against the A's. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's just, I mean, 100 plus is just a whole different realm, if you ask me. Can you imagine being a fan? Sure, the game was different back then, but you see that happen more than 100 times against your team. That is really something. You know, the thing that uh, it's, it's talked a lot about, but we don't really put numbers to it is the years Ted Williams lost serving in the military. And they were prime years. I mean, you look at those years and you look at his averages. I mean, he would have been well over 600 home runs. He may have the most RBIs of all time. Uh, it's just, it, 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 people don't, people don't address it enough. How just great Ted Williams numbers truly were. Absolutely. And, you know, Cody mentioned that to me earlier. So I did some rough math, you know, as you mentioned, he missed a lot of time. He missed five years, but two of them he played like partial seasons. One of them he played like 30-something games, and the other one he played like six or nine or something like that. But, you know, this is going to be approximate. But he hit 521 home runs in 2,292 career games, right? So if we do that per 150 games in a season, which is about what he was averaging, that's 34 home runs per season. So if you just say 34 home runs over five lost seasons, that's 170 additional. So he did hit a couple home runs in those seasons, but let's say even 150 additional home runs for him, you're getting very close to 700. I mean, you're upwards of 650 there. And it really seems like, you know, if he'd had those seasons and really been able to be there, 
that he would absolutely be, I mean, potentially have been knocking on the door or at least been really close to that 700 range. All right. I've been asking everybody. And of course, in New York, you've been in lockdown for a long time. What have you been doing a deep dive, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, puzzle games? What's the thing you've been doing? I've been reading a lot. Is that a really nerdy answer? <laughs> I've been reading a lot, but I've been reading a lot of baseball books. I actually just finished Swing Kings, so obviously, you know, Ted Williams came up there, and uh, that was really good. I love, I love reading baseball books. I read, uh, I read Keith Law's new book before that, um, which was really interesting to me because I was a psych major in college, and it's kind of about psychological tendencies and how they relate to baseball decision-making. And I never knew that you could actually combine what I majored in and sports because I've been trying to explain that since I went to college. So highly recommend both of those books. Okay, explain to me what you learned from that book and including your major. Yeah, I mean, I learned that, you know, there's a lot of stuff like recency bias and, you know, things like that, that just, it was describing the way that a lot of front, office decision uh, decisions get made and the way that we evaluate something like a trade or a draft pick and what we look at or what teams look at and how they can actually make decisions. I mean, one of the things that was discussed was the Blue Jays decision to uh, sign Jose Batista to the long-term deal that they signed him to. And I want to say it was 2010 and how they were able to skip over the concept of he'd had one good season they knew that that alone wasn't enough, but they had additional data. And like the moral of the story is always consider the data. And I'm not just saying that because I am the stats person, but the moral of the story is to look at those undeniable truths and then combine that with whatever else you know as a baseball person. And because they had stuff like his exit velocity and other underlying metrics, they were able to say, no, he's going to continue this. He did make a change and he is worth, you know, shelling out money for. And that was 100% right if you look at, you know, how those first few years for him after that contract went in Toronto, the postseason appearances and everything else. And it was something where the sort of gut reaction might have been, oh, no, no, we can't overreact to this. If I, I remember we've talked about that. Did you go to Northwestern or University of Chicago? University of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. You're one of those smart kids. <laughs> well, thank you. I don't know if that's true because I was the only person in my school who was like, yeah, yeah, I want to go work in sports. Everyone else is going to become like an economist or a doctor. And here I am talking about sports, but it was really cool to see them overlap in that book. You really know, cool. I, 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 I kick myself all the time and I, I have a lot of people come up to me who they want to get into broadcasting and I tell them all, Hey, that's great, but get a business degree. Make <laughs> sure you get a business degree. Then you can do broadcasting. You do what you can do with it, but get it. I, I kick myself for not getting a business degree. Yeah. You know, I was listening to an interview with uh, Jason Benetti the other day and I guess I had forgotten he's a lawyer. Like he went to law school. I did not remember that. And he did that as he was getting into broadcasting, but definitely see the value in, you know, there's so much you get. I, I'm a nerd, so I like school. So there's just so much that I feel like you get out of the concept of schooling and being in those kinds of situations. And it just applies to everything. And that's what I've told everyone, every job interview I've ever had. No, no, no. I know I didn't major in sports management, but here's why it still works. Well, that, that, that's my problem. I wasn't a nerd. I was a party guy. Look where it led me. I got to look at Cody every day. 
I think it worked out pretty well. <laughs> Sarah, you are the best. I know there's a lot going on in your area. Uh, be safe. Be well. We miss you. It's great hearing your voice. And hopefully we'll, in the next couple of days, hear about baseball coming back and we'll have you on again. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. So great to chat with you guys. From one researcher and columnist to another. Jared Diamond has the new book out, and he does a great job covering our game, the game of baseball, for the Wall Street Journal. Jared, we always appreciate the time, and congratulations on the great success of the book, Swing Kings. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I've done a, a billion radio shows and TV shows in the last two weeks, and I've only had bad news. So it's nice to be on one now and maybe possibly have some good news to talk about. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, talking about your book before we get into baseball, you, you, you know, it, it's fun to look at how our game is changing and how players and coaches and coaches that are not uh, with actual teams. It's just the evolution of our game is truly fascinating. And you do a great job about talking about that in your book. Thank you. Yeah, look. I am, I am fascinated in the evolution of baseball and where it's going and who are the people that are, are driving that, that sort of bus. Uh, and what was so interesting about this story is that the people driving that bus are not the people you'd expect. And, and maybe, that is, maybe that's the point. Maybe we've learned in baseball that so often, and probably in any industry, that the greatest innovation comes when we're willing to open our minds to different ideas, to a different way of doing things, a different way of thinking. That was the case 20 years ago with the A's and Moneyball, and that is the case now with this sort of swing revolution and the coaches who are involved with bringing it to the forefront. You know, the fascinating thing, and it's so simplistic, but it is real, it all starts with the ball. It's the baseball or the football or the basketball. I, I, I tell people all the time, if you would have got in, into a time machine and gone back into the 60s and told the big men in the NBA that someday you're not going to be that important anymore and that there's going to be this line that goes from baseline to the top of the key to the other baseline, it's going to be called a three-point line and shorter, shorter humans are going to be more important because they shoot a three-pointer versus you being able just to dunk it or have a layup into the basket. If you would have told people in the 60s that that was going to happen, they would have said, you're crazy. But what's happened in the <laughs> NBA? The three-pointer is the most important thing. So the evolution of how the ball matters in each game has changed. Oh, absolutely. And look, we've, we, we've, we could talk forever about the baseball and is it juiced or why is it flying more than ever before? But I think the point that you made about the three point line in basketball really is the key, which is sports change a lot. And there's this belief among baseball fans, or at least something they want to believe that baseball doesn't change, that baseball has been the same for 120 years that we could uh, sort of pinpoint any time in the history of baseball. And it's generally the same game. And the reality is, that's not true. It's never been true. It's a nice romantic notion that the game that Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth played is the same game that Mike Trout and, and Christian Yelich are playing, but it's not. The game is always evolving. It's always changing. Uh, and we're really seeing that now. And I think baseball fans are starting to come to grips with the fact that, yeah, the game is different in some ways now. 
uh, but it's still baseball. It's still beautiful. And, and evolution is just part of, it. you know, when I think about the change that we're going to have, you know, cause to me, everything, it, it's all about negotiations. And I know, uh, put it this way. I realize that they are floating stuff to certain writers and certain journalists it's all part of the negotiations, but we are going to have baseball. That, that is my true belief. I've said that. Um, with the changes in the game, what changes would you implement? We're going to have a short season. It's really an experiment. If you could make some changes, and what experiment would you like to see? Look, at this point, the goal is just getting something done. So maybe thinking about something radical is like, too much for me to ask, but I think you're 100% right that if they're smart, this is the opportunity to try a million things and see what sticks. You'll never have that chance again to just float things out there, try things, see what happens. And if you try a dozen things, 11 of them might be terrible ideas and one of them might work. You'll never get the chance again to sort of have that kind of experiment. So I hope they're, they're thinking of it that way. Uh, for me, though, uh, the idea of the pitch clock, something that Rob Manfred clearly wants and has sort of refused or declined to actually install. Uh, to me, it's a no-brainer. I think it's really important that baseball opens its mind to the pitch clock and players open their minds to the pitch clock. Because at the, at the end of the day, I, I just do not believe, I refuse to believe that a modern baseball game has to be three hours and ten minutes long. Now, the game is going to be longer than it was in the past. It just will. There's a lot of reasons why that is the case. There's certain things that you can't change. But adding a pitch clock simply gets pitchers to get on the mound and throw the ball faster. I am convinced it would have an impact on the game without having to fundamentally change anything, without having to fundamentally change the way the players go about playing the game on the field. So I hope that we get to a place before too long where that's tried out. Yeah, we, we've, we've talked to the, the young A's pitchers who have come up. And they've had the pitch clock in the minor leagues, so it doesn't affect them. So there's going to be quite a few years where you have players coming up. They're going to be used to that. And then I think about the electronic strike zone, which I can tell you 100% every guest I bring on, they absolutely hate it. But then I say, okay, but we talk about social distancing. You're in Florida. You're doing it. You're going to have a batter, a catcher, and an, and an older umpire all right next to each other. Is this the time because of the pandemic, you could say, let's try this because we want to protect the umpire and we don't want everybody being so close. Look, it's a, it's a great thought. It's a really smart point. It's something that I and others have certainly thought about as of you. Uh, I do think it's something they could look into. And I think, look, at the end of the day, the electronic strike zone is coming to major league baseball. It is. It, we all have to just get on board. It will be in Major League Baseball. The only question is when. Uh, now, is the technology really ready for prime time? I don't know. You know, I, I got to see it firsthand in the Atlantic League last year. Um, look, it, it's cool technology. It certainly wasn't perfect in the Atlantic League last year. But, yeah, like you said, does the social distancing component of this enough of an incentive to just try it and see what happens? Uh, I don't foresee see that happening this year but it's certainly like a realistic reasonable thought and i just thinking of it as you're answering that the technology would change because aren't we going from track man to hawkeye now in major league baseball 
Exactly. So the technology is getting better all the time. Like I said, the electronic strike zone will be in Major League Baseball. I am, I am so convinced of that. It's it's coming. It's just a matter of when, and it'll it'll be soon. I'm just not sure it's going to be like next month soon. What do you think it's going to be like for the front office and a manager? in a shortened season to where these guys are all used to this being a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. This is a full on sprint. I mean, this is a, this is, this is like the Olympic games where you're sprinting and going over hurdles for God's sakes. Uh, Edwin Moses, this is what this is going to be like. I I mean, how do you envision a shortened season? Everybody's going to have to think of the game of baseball differently than they ever have before. Like it's not going to be normal. This is not going to be a normal season. Whenever that season starts, we all have to accept it. Uh, just because it's not normal doesn't mean it's you know not worth playing. I certainly believe it's worth playing. Uh, you know, it's just going to be different, and that's okay. The the alternative at this point is no baseball at all. And I don't know about you, but I'm not really open to that idea at this point. Yeah, I mean, you go off the grid for 17 to 18 months, and I, I've been saying on this show, uh, I, I, I don't know what the sport would even look like if you go away for this long. I mean, it's one thing we saw it rebound after the strike, uh, and obviously it was Cal Ripken Jr.'s streak. It was the, the, the home runs with 1998, and we just had the, the, the film on that. By the way, that film didn't do that great in the ratings, and that kind of scares me. And I and, and I and I wish that uh, they would talk about that between the owners and the players. Going, hey, the Last Dance NBA Michael Jordan did great ratings. They came out with this film, which I was enthralled by, but it didn't do great in ratings. That scares me for baseball. Baseball's problems are real. Look, not not playing this year would be. Uh, it would be suicide for the industry. It just was. It just wouldn't. Baseball is It's not in the shape it was in 94. 94 was bad. This would be worse because the industry is in much worse shape than it was in 94. We all just have to accept it. It's just a fact. Uh, they have to play. If they, unless the virus tells they can't. That's obviously a different story. But if they don't play because of money, I'm not saying that's the end of baseball, but I am saying that that's irreparable damage. That That is damage that I don't know if even a decade or, or two undoes. You know, a, a, a thing that I talked about here on this show, and I thought it, it's a bad look, is once the PGA Tour came back, NASCAR's one thing, but once golf came back in the PGA Tour, and they're going to play every single Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you're going to see Rory McIlroy, and you're going to see Dustin Johnson, you're going to see Tiger Woods, and you're going to see Phil Mickelson. Every single time they tee it up, would you agree it it continues to be a bad look for baseball? There's no doubt about it. And The thing is, every sport's going to be back soon. They just are. Like The NBA is coming back, the NHL is coming back, Uh, they're going to be in their playoffs. Like, these other leagues are coming back, and I know it's different. I know those other leagues had different situations than baseball, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. That is a real phenomenon. But at the end of the day, they're coming back. Baseball is enough trouble that it's competing with the NBA these days, let alone the NFL. They had to come back, and uh, they're going to come back, it looks like, almost certainly. They're going to come back, uh, and hopefully it's enough to salvage it. But these last couple of months have been 
they've been very ugly for baseball. The last couple of weeks and days in, in particular have been, have been ugly. And I just hope that when this is all over, we get past it. There's finally some conversation with how do we try to make the game better? How do we try to grow the game and not just keep fighting like this? You know, I think this is a real honest question. And as someone who works for a major league baseball team, obviously you work for the wall street journal. So you, you do the business of baseball. If in every single organization, everybody, we're all having to sacrifice. I'm having to sacrifice my producer, everybody with the A's, all 30 teams employees are sacrificing right now. I'm normally always pro player, but if the players want to say we shouldn't sacrifice, we should get what we get and all of us have to sacrifice. What kind of look is that? Hmm. Look at the end of the day, the players are going to are saying that they are just abiding by the terms of this agreement, this infamous March agreement. And look, here's the thing. We could argue back and forth or discuss back and forth who's right or who's wrong. Here's the reality. The players are getting 100% proration. They just are. That conversation's over. The league is acknowledging that now. In the meeting that Rob Manfred and Tony Clark had in Arizona the last couple of days, it was accepted that players are getting 100% proration on their salaries. So, at the end of the day, it probably doesn't even matter anymore sort of who's right or who's wrong. It's just that's what's happening. Yeah, I mean, stuff is breaking as we speak. There's NFL coaches now. You know, the funny thing is, you know, baseball is going through this now. Uh, the NFL is going to go through the same thing. If there's no fans in the stands, they're going to have to have negotiations. And it's being reported by CBS Sports as we speak that some NFL coaches – are worried about the start of the regular season after some Cowboys, uh, Dallas Cowboys, uh, have tested positive for the coronavirus. You know, the NFL is going to go through the exact same thing with no fans in the stands. They're going to want to have negotiations with the players. Yeah, you would think. uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case, for sure. Uh, Look, every sport is having to reckon with this. This is this is an unprecedented situation. It, 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 they've never even accounted for the possibility of something like this happening. It's it's horrible. It's horrible for these leagues. And yeah, they're going to have to figure out what to do, just like baseball is figuring out what to do. Hopefully, for the NFL's sake, they're able to figure it out. Figure it out without quite as much acrimony. Well, you know, the one, uh, you know, there's nothing good about a pandemic, obviously, but in a time in need, I think about our show, I think about your book, we need the distraction for people that want to get away from all the, the, the horrible news, and congratulations with the book. I mean, it's been a big success. You know, a lot of people in our industry are, are talking about it. So congratulations with the book, Swing Kings. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to be talking about actual baseball coming up here soon. Yeah, I have a feeling we're going to be. I'm, I'm feeling optimistic today. I think we're going to find our way through that. And finally, we'll end with our buddy Eno Saris. We'll talk baseball and we always got to talk beer with Eno. Eno Saris from The Athletic and the king of the KBO broadcast. Eno Sarah <laughs> joins us here from the athletic uh, five. What's it like calling uh, a South Korean baseball at five in the morning? <laughs> Tiring. <laughs> I'm pretty tired. You know, got up early to do that. 
God. Like when, when we found out you did that, I'm like, I, I, you know, I support you. I'd love to watch it, but I got no shot at getting up at 5 a.m. <laughs> yeah. I actually kind of hemmed it hot and, uh, and wasn't sure I was going to do it for a little bit just because of <laughs> Yeah, because you're doing it with Boog, Shambi, who's in New York. It's at least 8 a.m. for him. I mean, that that's not too bad. Yeah, he still had to get up at 5 to, to get that going for himself. But, yeah, it's more middle of the night out here. But it was fun to talk to him and talk about this coming crazy season uh, and, and watch a little KBO. So, you know, the last time we were talking KBO, we had Dan Straley on. We had Matt Williams on. Uh, so, so how is it going there in South Korea right now? Uh, it's a pretty good game. I would say I, I, it's not, you know, you don't have the top end athletes. You don't have the Mike Trouts of the world over there, but it doesn't also look like uh, college or low minors where um, the talent level can be inconsistent and they don't necessarily have like a plan of attack when they get to the field. So these guys are all pretty polished. They have a plan. Uh, they know what they're doing. Um, it's just a, just missing a little bit of the top-end athleticism. Well, the Pitching Ninja on Twitter has been showing some of these guys, and uh, some of these guys, got they got some really good stuff, a lot of movement. Yeah, definitely a lot of movement. You know, that can be related to velocity. The higher you, you go with velocity, the less movement you can get. There's less time in the air and so on and so forth physics stuff but um they definitely have some cool pitches and and straley fits right in because uh that was one thing he was lacking was a little bit of velocity but in terms of movement his pitches always had great movement so we we've, we've been throwing a couple questions around today and one of them we're going to ask dennis eckersley later on is about the juice you get as a pitcher when you come in and the, and the crowd's going nuts what do you think that's going to be like now when you come in and there's no crowd? How much is that going to affect adrenaline? I did ask uh, a couple of people about that. Um, and uh, they, you know, I had talked to Sean Doolittle about his difference in velocity between spring training and the big league and the, and the big league season, uh, the regular season. And he said that, you know, in spring training, you come in, you slap somebody in the butt. Uh, you wave to somebody in the crowd, you, you get your throws in, uh, and you get out of there. So he always thought that he had a couple ticks in between, um, you know, a couple ticks of velocity in between his season and his spring training in the season. But when I talked to uh, people about this situation, um, they said that the, the big toggle for them wasn't necessarily fans or not. And that actually makes sense because in spring training, there are fans. Uh, they said the toggle for them was whether it counted. Um, and so they said that, you know, if I'm stepping in the box and it's quiet, like if I'm sitting in the box and it's really loud, I don't want to hear them anyway. So he, you know, these players have said to me that like, all that matters is, does this, does this at bat count? Then I'm going to try my hardest and do my best. And then the slow start, you know, something we worry about with the A's and I think will be a worry for everybody, whether it's teams, it's players, because, you know, you and I have been in these clubhouses and guys get off to a, a bad start. Next, you know, they're using that bad cliche. Hey, I look at the back of the baseball card. This guy will get it going. Well, there's going to be pressure that if you don't start out, if you don't start out fast, this can get in your dome and teams can get left behind. Yeah, and I think that'll be interesting to see how teams work. And in fact, I wonder if, 
some of the secret because for the A's, they have had some slow starts. And, you know, from a statistical standpoint, I'd say you have to come up with a reason for why they would have slow starts. Just the fact that they are Oakland or whatever, that wouldn't make any sense. Is it that the temperature is colder early in the season? That doesn't seem to be true. Like, it's pretty cold in Oakland, uh, you know, at nighttime during the game time all season. Um, is it because they make decisions differently than other teams? That could be true. I think that they sometimes change their bullpen arrangements faster than other teams. Um, you remember Liam Hendricks' rise. He was, you know, as soon as he came back throwing 97, he was back in the ninth inning, and he'd just been released. Um, you know, Yeah, he'd been released, basically, uh, two weeks or three weeks before. So, you know, I think that they make decisions fast. So in that sense, they might be in a good place because what you're going to have to do this season is make decisions fast. You're going to have to re- rearrange your bullpen really fast. You're going to have to move somebody in and out of the rotation really fast. You're going to have to you're going to have to decide this guy's exit velocity is terrible right now. He's he's not healthy. Something's going on. We're either going to put him on the DL or start mixing in this other player. And that's what you're going to see uh, because you can't just be like, okay, well, like you said, we can't just wait for the variance to even out and just say, well, we're 0 and 11 now. That means we're going to go 11 and 0 later. There might not be that later. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm wondering if contact by hitters will will start concentrating on making better contact because we've seen record number of strikeouts, but you don't want to get in that bad vibe not putting the ball in play, and next thing you know, you're 15 games in, and you're like, oh my god, I'm hitting a, I'm hitting 205. It's true. And there is actually some evidence that contact plays well in the postseason um, and that contact plays well against high velocity. And the league is getting to be a higher velocity league. And I think a 60 game season is going to feel like a postseason. You know, it's going to feel like September ball. There's going to be be starting pitchers throwing three innings before the bullpen comes in. There's going to be openers. There's going to be bullpen days. There's going to be uh, closes during three days in a row. Um, and they're going to do that because every game matters so much. Um, and so I, I do think that maybe the, the, the contact team, the other thing that I'm thinking gives you an advantage in this season is youth and upper minors depth. Because if the players that you have that are on your taxi squad or whatever we're going to call it, satellite squad, if they're good, um, and you, when you, there's going to be injuries inevitably and an injury, like a two week injury in a regular season is a two week injury, two week injury this season is like a six week injury. Um, and so it's going to really matter if you're going to have some quality depth, some players that can step in and be good. And so I think like, you know, I think the A's have that to an extent, but, uh, when I think of quality depth, I think a little bit more like the Rays, the Padres, maybe, uh, the White Sox. Uh, these young teams that uh, have a lot of ready prospects at the top. You know, I just asked Cody this because we've heard about these new rules that are coming in. We're still going to do the, the the three batter minimum with pitchers, right? That's my understanding. Uh, and I also understand, I think, that the the guy on second at uh, in the 10th inning, uh, we're going to put somebody on second in the 10th inning. I, I hear that that's an unearned run. Uh, so you can lose uh, a perfect game in this situation. Uh, and the other thing is uh, that that will go away for the postseason and we'll have regular uh, regular extra innings in the postseason. Yeah, and I think I even heard on Buster Only's podcast that because everybody's like, oh, if you got a really fast guy, you're going to put him out there. I think it's the guy who makes the last out in the ninth 
he's the guy that's going to go out to second. Yeah, you would have to you would have to do a pinch a pinch run situation, and you know uh, this is relevant to the to the A's. The 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 larger roster that they're going to have, the thirty man roster they're going to have, it's only going to be thirty for two weeks, and then it's going to be twenty eight for another two weeks. So I think that's mostly going to be pitchers because as much as I would like Jorge Mateo and Franklin Barreto to make both make the team, and they may for a short time, um, and then you could use Jorge Mateo in this sort of Terrence Gore, Billy Hamilton, pinch runner situation. Um, there's not enough value in that player once you get down to 26 man, uh, the regular 26 man roster to keep him on the roster. If all he's doing is like pinch running for you in the 10th inning, uh, it's you know that doesn't happen enough for you to to really keep that player around. What, what what's going to be the rule with this uh, taxi squad, whatever? How often can you come up and down? And if you go down, do you have to stay down for X amount of days, or you can just be bringing guys up and down as much as you want? I don't actually know that part, uh, but I do know that the uh, coronavirus DL is separate. So there may uh, there are probably going to be rules where, like, if you go down. Um, but then you're replacing somebody that got the coronavirus, you can come up the next day. Uh, because the coronavirus uh, DL that they're creating, IL that they're creating, is going to be kind of separate from regular IL rules. It doesn't have a, a sunset date, for example. So depending on how quickly you clear up, that's how you come back. It's not a 15-day DL or something like that, 15-day uh, IL. So uh, I think the coronavirus... And just the way that things are right now is definitely going to throw a wrench into the season. Um, one thing that I think is interesting that nobody's talking about, um, and it's a very uncomfortable question, but what is the number of players on one team uh, testing positive during the season where baseball stops? Because there has to be a number. What if 15 A's got sick? Like, I, I, don't, I don't think that the rest, I don't think the A's would be like, hey, like, let's just keep playing ball. That's 15. What is and the way that people train, you have like five starters. Maybe the starters hang out with each other. What if the whole starting rotation goes down? Yeah, um, you know, that, so. you know that, that, that was something that we actually were talking about earlier before you came on. It, what, what I would like to know is when you tell me a guy is tested positive, tell me how he feels. Because a lot of people who are in their 20s, when they get this, they won't even feel anything. So you tested positive, so we got to quarantine you, but you don't ha really have any symptoms. Ezekiel Elliott, the great running back for the Dallas Cowboys, said for like two days he had a little bit of a cough and just, you know, a, a little shortness of breath, and that was it. Now he feels great. So it's like it, the, the symptoms for your age group are different. That's why we got to protect people who are 60 and older, or people who have underlying conditions. But if you say a guy tested yeah. And he doesn't even feel it, you know. So, so that's what I want to know. If a guy tests positive, I want to know what his symptoms are. Yeah, and also, how does that relate to like how how much they could spread it? You know, like when do you decide they're not going to spread it? You just keep testing them until they don't test positive, and then you you put them back in. The tests aren't 100 percent either. So, um, you know, I, I understand that like they could play ball. It would be very frustrating to somebody who gets it. Um, and, uh, I could, I understand they could play ball, but they could also spread it, uh, and they could spread to, you know, like Dusty Baker is not a spring chicken. Um, and he's going to be the manager for, uh, the Astros. So, um, you know, he's going to come into some contact with his players. So yeah, it's, um, 
it's uh, it, it doesn't seem like likely that we're going to finish a full season in the playoffs. And yet, because it's been so painful to get here, uh, I would I just sort of choose optimism uh, because the other side is just we did the other side. That was the last three months, and it was not not that great. I'll just say it wasn't that great. <laughs> no, I it, it was uh, it was horrific, and <laughs> I, 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 I've been telling everybody I miss keeping score. I miss working every day. I, I miss my routine. Yeah, yeah, and the spring training is gonna be weird because it sounds like they're gonna have a maximum of three games in the entire spring training. So um, we're gonna have these shows and we're gonna update people as much as we know. But what will we know? Uh, we'll know only kind of what PR tells us. We're not going to be at the stadium for the most part. And they're not even maybe necessarily going to have games. Or are they going to have intra-squad games? Are we going to get velocity reports? And we're going to hear that, you know, Madison Bumgarner threw three innings today? Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I think the, the spring is going to be weird, too. <laughs> you know, this, whatever, the summer camp. <laughs> this whole deal between the players' union and Major League Baseball, it, it, it's toxic, but it's their fault. It's both their faults. And you just wonder, you know, at some point, they need to understand that their game is not bulletproof. And so they act like it is. They, 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 they act like they can do this kind of stuff and that the American public is always going to come back and give them money. I mean, we are at times, because uh, what we're going through now what we're going to go through an election, we're going to go through the virus, we're going to go through all of that. And if they go into this offseason continuing to be like this, you, you can kill the golden goose. Yeah, and I think that it, it kind of seems, I think the players almost understand it more because the owners keep kind of doing this brinksmanship um, that they seem to be fine with like, well, you know, when I sell this team, it'll still be worth $3 billion. But um, at some point, if there's no, if there's like, if they'd had no play this year and then they locked out again next year, if you have no baseball in two out of three years, then the valuation of your team is going to go down. It's just not going to be worth as much, you know? And that's, that's what makes the world go round for owners is watching that, that value of the team go up. So the value of the team is based on, you know, them playing all the time and it being good. You know, we, we tried replacement players and it wasn't, it wasn't good baseball, you know? Um, so I think that I put a little bit more blame on the owner side. Um, but, uh, I think I understand it a little bit too, in the context of with this labor fight coming, the biggest give that the players have, the thing that they can give, and you have to give something to get something in any negotiation. And the biggest give that they can give is actually expanded playoffs because they don't want to do revenue share because they don't trust the owners to actually show them the right revenue and open up their books and really tell them the, the truth. So if you don't do salary cap and revenue sharing, the only thing they can do is expanded playoffs. We give you expanded playoffs and you double the minimum salary. That's the sort of thing that I see them doing. If they gave expanded playoffs now in this year, then they don't have it really to give again. And that's the whole, we know that we know they want to play but the rules can still be negotiated, right? I mean, we can still have different rules pop up on, on us before July 23rd or July 24th. It's true. It's true. That's why the DH is uh, going to happen for the National League this year, but not necessarily next year when we may uh, or may not, may not return to normal. So, you know, uh, that's 
they're allowed to do things like that. And uh, that's why the roster size uh, is what it is. And, um, you know, there's going to be rules about, um, you know, where people can sit. There's health-related rules. So, yeah, there's definitely a certain amount of rules that they can just implement. Um, but they're trying to do the, the health stuff. It seems like there's a little bit more cooperation on the health stuff. There's definitely been more back and forth. Uh, it hasn't been as acrimonious. We haven't heard as much about it. And they've got a 101-page document that's all about the different health things that, uh, that people will do, whether or not you can shower there, whether or not you can spit sunflower seeds on the ground. You know, the thing that I think about, uh, and I know people really don't want to hear much about labor, but the one thing that if I was an owner, what I would think of, and if I was a player, is we know the way the system is set up, it was to pay veteran guys. And really, your best players are in their 20s, in their primes of 26, 27, 28. You know, maybe starting free agency earlier and paying your players Mm -hmm. earlier. If I was an owner, I'd rather pay for a guy in his prime than be paying a guy when he's 34. Yeah, uh, for sure. And that's the problem is that the system that they set up over time, if you showed it to me uh, as a fantasy player, I'd be like, oh, you know what I want on this team? I want as many people in on the minimum salary as possible. And that's now we now have 40% of baseballs on the minimum salary. And then I'd say, okay, well, arbitration is okay. So then the second best thing would be arbitration. Well, guess what? Two-thirds of baseballs in arbitration. That means that one-third of baseballs in free agency and some portion of that one-third is just like your million-dollar reliever. You know, your five, your $750,000 reliever, your, your $2 million back-end starter. Um, and, uh, and so really when people think that the players make a lot of money, they're thinking of Bryce Harper, but there aren't that many Bryce Harpers. Um, and so I think that that's why I would attack the minimum salary, double the minimum salary, because that's what people are being paid. Uh, and then if we could make, maybe everyone be super two or chop a year off or start uh, your years of control when you're drafted so that teams are like, whoa, you know, we drafted him. We want to get him to the big leagues fast uh, because now we only have six years from the moment we draft him. Um, so that sort of deal, uh, that's, that's exactly what they need to do. They need to change the structure of payment. Let's end on this. Who's the team that's going to shock the world? I, I kind of like the Padres. I think it's going to be the Padres. It wouldn't shock the world if the A's did it, right? I mean, they're, they're building towards something. They obviously have the young arms and they have uh, the young bats and, and they seem like they're ready to, to do well. But the Padres are kind of everyone's, uh, you know, the, the, you know, kicking toy, you know, <laughs> like they're just like, you know, they're never good. And uh, uh, but they've got a lot of young arms. And if anybody goes down that rotation or if they start to do anything really innovative with their pitching staff, they've got so many young arms that they can keep running guys out there. Um, and if Manny has a slightly better year and Tatis takes a step forward uh, and that new, that new center fielder they've got does well. So I think that the Padres are my pick for surprise team. It, so, so Manny Machado is actually going to play hard this year? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, but some people's playing hard look different from other people's playing hard. I think. <laughs> oh, 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 before we go, we're entering summer. What, what, what beer do you recommend to us in summertime? Um, well, I just, uh, I had a row. I see it's like it's some numbers. It's the, uh, it's the Russian river pale ale, uh, row 56 Hill. What is it called? I'm, I'm actually, and in front of my beer fridge, there it is. 
Row two, Hill 56. Uh, is a really good pale ale from Russian River. You can get it delivered. And then if you want a grocery store beer, uh, Golden Road has a, a mango cart uh, beer, which is just like a mango wheat ale, super light, uh, kind of fresh, kind of had it on the beach in Tahoe last weekend. That's when you, you know what? That's when you are a real man. You've got a beer fridge. <laughs> and it's completely full. <laughs> like a, not even like the, one of those little ones. It's like one of, a big fridge. <laughs> that's, that's when you're a true grown man. You got your own beer. <laughs> Honey, don't put anything else in here. It's only beer. Yeah, she's always trying to put something in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're the best, buddy. Stay safe, and hopefully we'll see you soon. Yeah, all right. Thanks for having me. That will do it for A's Unfiltered. We want to thank Tim Kirchin, Sarah Langs, Jared Diamond, and Eno Saris. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 